Uh, we're going to be in John. We've made it to John 7. It's exciting. Uh, John 7 is a, uh, it's a turn in the book. It's a turn in the theme of the book. Uh, so if you don't have a Bible, uh, in the very back, uh, get one of those because uh, it will be helpful since that's what we're going to be talking about is the Bible. Uh, so if you, if you don't own one, we put those in the back so that you could take them with you. Uh, if you do own one, then there's some in the pews and you can just use those. Uh, we're going to be on page uh, 892 and we're starting John chapter 7, verse 1. John is the fourth of the Gospels. It's the fourth book in the New Testament. Um, and we're going to be in John for quite some time as I'd like to take our time as we go through it. So, like I said... Uh, John, while you guys are finding where we're going to be, John, uh, the writer of this gospel, is taking a turn in chapter 7. What he's been doing, as we've talked about before, uh, he's not writing like the other gospel authors. He's not giving this three-year, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. He's not giving this chronological explanation of this three-year of three years of Jesus' ministry like the other gospel authors do. John is giving a portrait. He's hand-selecting stories. He's hand-selecting miracles to weave together a portrait so you walk away having met Jesus, not just having seen him done some things. Do you feel what I'm saying? So John is, is, is this intimate portrait of who Jesus is. And the way that John does that is he's layering these three themes together. He's layering the testimony with belief with life. And I'll explain what that means. He's layering testimony, John's testimony and Jesus' testimony about who he is and what he came to do. So he's testifying. You're constantly going to see that word over and over in the book of John. That he's testifying about something. Sometimes it's about the evil of men. Sometimes it's about his own deity. But he testifies about who he is and what he came to do. And then after testifying, he beckons the reader to believe, not to fully understand, not to know. It's not an intellectual grasp that he's after, but he beckons the reader and the people in the story to believe, and the result is life. So you're constantly going to see the theme of life. You'll constantly see the theme of belief and this theme of testimony. And so he's layering these three together to give you one story. Um, and the focus now is turning from Jesus' life to Jesus' death. So John 7, uh, up to this point, John has been writing about the things that Jesus is saying. He's writing about uh, Jesus' claim, claims about his deity, and he's writing about some miracles that Jesus has done. And he's doing that away from like the epicenter of Israel, which is Jerusalem. He's doing this sort of north of Jerusalem in, in the slums of Israel. He's in Galilee. Um, and he's doing most of his work in his early ministry around this area. And now John is going to take this turn where Jesus points towards Jerusalem and he's headed to Jerusalem because this is where Jesus dies. So all of the talk that John has about his testimony is meaningless if Jesus does not die. 
So Jesus is not just this teacher who's got some cool things to say about what you ought to do with your money and what you ought to do with your time, but he is an atoning sacrifice to pay for the sins of men. So without his death, Jesus is meaningless to these people and to you and me. He's just another dude who says some crazy stuff about being God. If he doesn't die, if he doesn't give his life for you and for me, then it's cool we can read this book and we can talk about some cool things that he said, but we get no benefit. We get nothing. So the rest of this gospel is the walk of Jesus towards Jerusalem, towards his own death, and he knows that. Okay, so, um, we're going to jump in, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. So, between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7, there's been about six months that have passed. So, let's not try to keep this chronological. Like I said, that's not John's intent. He's not giving you a chronological layout like the other gospel writers. He's giving you a portrait. So, there's been about six months. He's jumping from the Feast of Passover to the Feast of Booths. Uh, So, let's jump in. Chapter 7, verse 1, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea. Judea is the area where Jerusalem is. So there's three areas in Israel. There's, it's not this way now, but it's, it was that way. Then you have Galilee, Samaria, and Judea. Judea is not a city. It's more like a It's more like a state, but you can't really say that. It's just an area. Jerusalem is the capital of Judea, the capital of Israel also. Okay. So, uh, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying, the, after saying this, he remained in Galilee. Okay, so his brothers are weird and antagonistic. Um, and they're probably just like everybody else's brothers. Um, they're, they're sort of tired of him being this weird guy who's talking about being God, and they sort of wish he would just shut up. So I think they're sort of thinking that he goes to Jerusalem uh, and gets humiliated, so he comes back home and stops acting like an idiot. Um, and so they're sort of pressing him. There's, there's a lot in here, but we're seeing that they don't believe any of his claims about who he is. Incidentally, later on, they will actually write two of the New Testament uh, epistles. So they do come to a pretty... A pretty strong belief. Uh, James and Jude are going to write. Um, they're they're going to come to become believers of him, but not right now. Um, so, okay, so he's making this really weird claim about the world can't hate you. And so he's not saying that, the, that, that people can't hate his brothers. And he's not saying that, uh, that, well, he's just not saying people, he's saying the world in general, the system of the world 
cannot hate him. People can hate his brothers, but the system, the entire world cannot hate his brothers because his brothers are a part of the system. But Jesus is saying, the world hates me. I'm different than the world. I'm, I'm utterly different than the world, than everyone else. Because why? Because I testify about the evil. I testify about the evil. And he says the world hates him because of it. What's he talking about? Um, so just let's, let's jump backwards just for a minute and let's lay out exactly what he's saying. So the earth and all of its inhabitants are opposed to God. That's weird. You may not hear that all the time, especially if you don't go to church all the time. Even if you do go to church, you, you may not hear that all the time. But the earth and everyone that lives on it is opposed to God by nature. By our nature, we are opposed to God. Um, the way this plays out is God creates, God created absolutely everything so that it would glorify him, so that it would make known the way he is. That one of the ways the Bible puts this is the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork. Day by day they pour forth speech. So what it's saying is, is the heavens, the universe, these massive stars that when they collapse create black holes that actually alter space and time. They're so big that he just speaks those into existence. And that system that he creates, the universe, is to display his power, his glory. It's to glorify him. And so that he creates so that he might behold his glory, that he might put something out there that is a tangible manifestation of how powerful he is, how creative he is, how beautiful he is. He doesn't just say that he is these things, he makes these things, right? And so the, the, God exists in this, this relationship of inward, beautiful communion that's called the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They exist in this love relationship with each other. And they all understand full well how beautiful and satisfying and powerful they are. And so out of that knowledge, they create. They create things to display that. And then what we find out in Genesis 1 as the capstone to that creation, they create these humans who don't just display power and beauty and creativity like the rest of creation does, but they display the image of God like nothing else in creation does. They display the image of God so that humans are stamped, are made to be this image that we don't just display. Creation displays the power, the majesty, the beauty, the creativity of God, while humans display the character of God to that creation. We were created to govern the creation as if God were governing it himself so that we are the image of God. We are the we are the, the thing most like him to display the way he is. Love, mercy, goodness, compassion, grace. That was what humans were to do, right? And y'all, most of y'all know what happens on like the third page of Genesis. God sets it all up and he says, now, now make the rest of the world like this garden. Cultivate the rest of the world like this garden. Be me to the world. Be the stewards of this earth. And I'll provide everything for you. 
One thing, though, there's a tree there in the middle. Don't eat, don't eat that tree. And so Eve creeps along with some snake, and the snake's like, nah, that tree's going to be tasty, and it's going to make you wise, and you'll be like God. Um, so Eve eats of it. Adam eats of it. Um, and they do the one single thing they weren't supposed to do, and so they cut themselves off from the root of life. So that God is this self-sustaining, beautiful creator. And they're like, nah, we'll do our own thing. We'll be our own God. We'll find our own satisfaction. And so doing, they cut themselves off from life. And death enters into the creation. And it's not this judicial, you sinned, now die, which is part of it. It's you are cutting yourself off from the source of life. So the only other thing that happens is death. It's like if you, if you go down to, to my house and take one of my plants and cut it off and you pull it up, it's not like God looks at you and says, bad move, bro, I'm going to kill it now. N- no, you cut it off from it, the source of its life. And, that, and so that's what we do. We cut ourselves off from the source of life, from the source of our purpose in existence. And so doing, we rebel against our Creator and our purpose. And what happens is, Adam, and this is the Bible is so beautiful in the way it says this, but so terrible too. Adam, after that, begets Seth in his image. So what's imprinted onto Seth, while it is the image of God that was put onto Adam, it's the broken image of God now. So what we inherit from Adam to Seth to your grandma to you, is the broken image of God that is bent to do our own will, to be our own gods, to satisfy our own cravings and do what we think is best because we now have the knowledge of good and evil and so we do what we think is right. And so Jesus comes on the scene to testify about that. So he's not rolling into Judea and is like, smoking a cigarette, put that out. If you want tobacco, no. You're drunk. It's not, it's not that. He's testifying about the rebellion of men from the Creator. And he testifies, and that's not a happy story. It's not a happy story. Um, so, so, I think we feel this. Um, and what's weird is we hide from it. We feel that and we hide from it too. So we feel that life isn't right and humans aren't good, but somewhere along the line we adopted the philosophy that humans are basically good and I'm a good person, but we've all been terribly scarred by failed relationships at home, failed relationships with friends, failed relation, the failed relationship with ourselves, where we constantly don't live up to our own expectations of ourselves, and so we entertain guilt and shame and anger that's outward and inward and so we're sort of caught up in this mess and what we do for the most part is identify sin in other people and then justify it in ourselves so we we're really good at calling somebody else out and how did jesus put this well you, you want to pull the speck out of your brother's eye but you don't realize you have a log in your own eye And so we're really good at that. We're really good at seeing that, yeah, everybody's wrong but me. Everybody sucks but me. How weird is that? 
And so we're caught into this really weird place, and Jesus also comes um, to testify about that. Okay, so, so before we keep going into this, what's the manner? I think, it's, I think we, need to, we need to point out really quickly before Jesus comes off looking in a, a way that he's not. How does he testify about this? He, this is what's... Uh, it's cool. He doesn't give you a big booming voice from the sky and say like, all of you are idiots and I'm going to kill all of you. It's... Not, if you don't straighten up, right? He's born into humanity, but he's not born into rich, upper class, ruler of Israel humanity. He's born into lower class, peasant Israel who doesn't even have a place to be born, so he's born in a stable and he's put in a manger. So he doesn't just come and experience humanity. He, is, he experiences base level humanity. He experiences things that we probably never will. We don't see Jesus' dad in the Gospels. It's probably because he was dead. His mom was like 14 when she had him. And she's cruising on a donkey like hours before she's given birth. Like the life that he's living is not this cush life that he steps down from to point out what's wrong. He comes in and experiences the grit of humanity so that from inside he can look and say, Really, like, bro, this is uh, this sucks. This is wrong. This isn't good. It's not this from the top down. Even though he could have done that completely if he wanted to, he is the. It, the New Testament says he upholds the creation by the word of his power. I don't even know what that means. I don't. But he comes in. Uh, the the way John introduces his gospel says it more perfect. Uh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. Full of what? Y'all know this. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. That's the key. Why is that profound? Well, what are the best kinds of friends? Sometimes. The ones that tell you the truth. Why is my wife my best friend? Because she'll look at me and be like, dude, you need to cut your hair. You can't go out looking like that in public. Terrell, you need to be quiet. You talk way too much. Because she loves me, she tells me the truth. Right? My, one of my professors says it. He said, you know what a best friend is? A best friend is someone who doesn't believe all the good things you say about yourself because they know you're a liar. And a best friend is a person who doesn't believe all the bad things you say about yourself because they know you're a liar. And I'm like, when he said that, I was, like in, cl I was in class like crying. I was like, jeez, bro, that's good. <laughs> it was good. I was really crying. Um, 
But that's, that's it. It's this, it's this cold-hearted, tender-hearted truthfulness full of grace and truth. What's, what do you want in a doctor? You don't want some whole boy that's going to run in there and be like, I think it's going to be pretty good, even though like your arm's hanging off. Like in a doctor, you need somebody who's going to give you a diagnosis that's proper so that you can get a cure that'll work. You don't need some guy fluffing you up and making you feel just fine and dandy when you're dying of cancer. He needs to know what he's talking about. He needs to pinpoint the problem, and he needs to address it with a cure. He needs a diagnosis that's proper and a cure that works. I don't care how much it hurts when you tell me. You just better tell me. And so Jesus rolls in full of grace, full of truth. And why is the grace so right? Because grace isn't valuable without the truth. Grace is not valuable without the truth. Grace is just pomp or fluff without truth. It's not grace. Forgiveness is meaningless when you're not at fault. Jesus' atoning death isn't insanely valuable to a bunch of people who don't think they're wicked. Jesus' death, his atoning death, isn't insanely valuable to a bunch of people who don't think they're wicked. That's going to make sense as we jump into verse 10. So let's keep going. Uh, But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, this is a seven-day feast. It's, pretty a, it's a pretty cool feast. I think I'd like to do it one day. The Feast of Boots is where they commemorate uh, the time that they traveled from Egypt to the Promised Land, which was a 40-year travel because they were being rebellious and it should have been much quicker, but God provided for them the entire way. And so at the Feast of Booths, they all come to Jerusalem, all the men, and they make these little booths with little palm roofs, and then they party for seven days, and then they all sleep (laughs) in the little booths. It sounds like a good time. It's like camping in the city. Wait, oh yeah, Dustin said it's like Jewish Woodstock. That's exactly what it's like, and that sounds sweet. Um, and it's, it's like the, it's, apparently it's the favorite feast of the Jews, especially at this time. It's like the favorite feast. Um, and so he's, uh, he's not going to it. And all the Jewish men went to this particularly. So they are looking for him. Okay, about the middle of the feast, ver- verse 14. About the middle of the feast, it's a seven-day party. Sweet. Um, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying... How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent 
Sin him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. This is a Jewish way of saying you're crazy. Um, Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. He's talking about him healing a guy from John 5. If you remember, they were at a pool, and he, this guy that's been lame for most of his life, and he, he heals him. Um, and that's, that's the one he's talking about. I did one work. This is the only thing he did in Jerusalem thus far in, 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 this, uh, in the book of John. So uh, Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. I'm going to explain that hopefully for the most part, and I'm going to do it fairly quickly. Then we'll apply, and hopefully this will make sense. So they're seeing that he gets up and teaching, he's teaching, and it's compelling. It sounds right. And they're listening, and they're like, geez, who's this guy? Because the way, the way I understand it to happen in, in their culture is everyone was schooled up to the age of 13, but then if you were super brilliant, a rabbi would come by, he would pick you out of the population, and you would follow him until you're 30, and you would have the Old Testament memorized, you would definitely have the first five books totally memorized, and you would learn in the, in the specific philosophy of that rabbi. But that's only a few people. For the most part, you go to 13, and then you go into the trade of your family. And Jesus didn't get picked to be a rabbi, probably because he was a little crazy. Um, and so when he comes up, 30 years old, teaching, and he knows what he's talking about, and it's compelling, and they're, they're, they're stunned. It's almost a miracle to them because it's so compelling. How? How is he able to say this stuff? It's not wrong right and and the teaching is in reference to him being the fulfillment of the old testament him being the fulfillment of all the stories given to the jewish nation him being the fulfillment of all the laws given to the jewish nation of all the religious ceremonies given to the Jewish nation, he fulfills them, he completes them. And the way he does that is all of these ceremonies have like woven in them this thing that Jesus accomplishes for the Jewish nation. So all what he's saying is God gave you these stories, these commandments, and um, these ceremonies, not because they're an end in themselves, but because they point to me, and they point to me to give you a firm foundation so that you can know that when I die, it does atone for everything you've ever done wrong, because this has been the plan from the beginning. This isn't just some add-on because God's not getting his way with humans. This was the plan from the beginning, and he's been trotting it out, and he's proven his point, and he's saying, look at all this, look at all this, look at all this, me. The temple is me. The Ten Commandments is me. All of it's me. The Feast of Booths is about me. The whole thing is about me. I come to fulfill this thing. And it, and it seems like they're fairly compelled by it. It seems like they look at that and they're like, what? He teaches and it's like he's been taught. And then he attributes 
their inability to understand, not to their mental capacity, right? He attributes their inability to understand to their unwillingness to submit to God, right? They can't understand, not because they can't get it and it's too confusing, but because they want to do their own will and seek their own glory instead of that of God's. Faith precedes understanding, not just in entrance to Christianity, but in the duration of Christianity and the end of Christianity. Faith precedes understanding. When you are submitted to do the will of God, no matter what the will of God be, he reveals his purpose. He reveals his plan. He reveals to you. Faith precedes understanding. It, preve- it precedes revelation. So they don't understand while they're being taught. And the reason they don't understand is because they don't trust that God is good and is bringing the Christ to them. What they do trust is their own ability to manipulate their lives and to maintain their own power for their own glory. And so you have the Jewish authorities, him talking specifically to them, and the way that he calls this out is just their inconsistency. That's what the whole thing about circumcision and Moses and the law is about. Because they said, you, they said, we are righteous, you're not righteous. And the reason we're righteous is because we don't do anything on the Sabbath, and you heal people on the Sabbath, and that's not good. Because it breaks the Jewish law. We're righteous, you're not righteous. Therefore, you can't be the Christ. Therefore, we do what we want. We maintain power. We exalt ourselves. We do our will. And so he just says, hey, you can break the Sabbath for circumcision, but you can't break the Sabbath for making a man completely well, for healing a man who's been disabled for 38 years. If you really sought to do the will of God, you would see that what I say about myself and my atoning death is right. But because you seek your own will, your own glory, your own ends, you're not going to see this. And so he's done public miracles and shown miraculous understanding of the Old Testament. And they can't understand because they have this death grip on their lives, on their desires, and exalting themselves, and it short-circuits their ability to be healed, freed, redeemed. They won't accept the diagnosis, so they can't have the cure. They will not accept the diagnosis of what their issue is, and so they fail to get the cure. And what happens to these people is 40 years after this, all of Jerusalem is destroyed by the Romans because the Jews are waiting for this Messiah, waiting for this Messiah, waiting for this Messiah, waiting for this Messiah. Jesus rolls up and says, I'm him, follow me. And they're like, no, you're not him. We're not following you. So they become their own Messiahs. They lead their own rebellion against Rome, and Rome wins, and Jerusalem is destroyed. And so you see this, Jesus comes up to Jerusalem, he's on a hill and he oversees Jerusalem and he weeps and he says, I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks, but instead not one stone will be left on top of another. 
if you would trust me the direction I'm going, if you would trust me to point out the problems and find the cure and give it to you, you'd be golden and you wouldn't lead this rebellion against Rome that kills you. And the thing is, is I think I think we're so very much the same way. I think we're so very much the same way that we're content to take part in religion. We're content to take part in religion and we're content to say, I'll follow God, I'll do what God wants me to do. But we hide ourselves from some of the more painful diagnosis that the Holy Spirit wants to make in our lives. And so we're content to do basic religious things. We're content to try to read the Bible. We're content to come in here and sing some songs. And we're content to go on a mission trip. And we're content to do some basic religious things. But when it comes to saying, like, everything, everything, I'll hold it all with an open hand and you can, God, like, your will be done, not my will be done. When it comes to that, we're mostly like, yeah, except for this one thing. Like, you can seriously, you can have it all, God. You can have all of that except for this relationship with my boyfriend because I love him. You can, you can have all that. But I'm just going to get wasted every now and again when I go to parties, just every now and again. Like, you can have it all, but I think weed's okay, because it says you can have all the fruit in the garden. Like, we have all these cool justifications for that one thing we want to do. We have all these cool just, and we're saying, yeah, cool, you can have it all. Take it all except for this. And so we push away the leading of God. We push away the Holy Spirit. We close ourselves off to it completely. Because we won't accept the diagnosis. We can't accept the diagnosis. Because it's painful and the truth hurts. And so we don't receive grace because we can't accept truth. We can accept some truth. Some truth is easy. And I think this manifests itself mostly, like I was saying, in, in two, two very real ways. We'll hold on to very subtle gray areas of foolishness or sinfulness. We'll hold on to these very gray areas of foolishness or sinfulness. Like, this is, I, I say this all the time because it comes up all the time. Some of you are in relationships you don't need to be in because they're going the wrong direction and you know it and you feel it. And you don't need to be in them. And some of them aren't relationships with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. They're with a group of people. And so that you're claiming Christ and you want to be like the Bible says you ought to be. And you want to feel that joy. And you want to be doing the things you ought to do. And you thought things were going to be different and they're just not. And it's because you've surrounded yourself with the wrong group of people. And that diagnosis hurts to hear. But you're caught up in a group of people that aren't leading you down the road you want to go and you know it and you feel it, but it's too hard to say, okay, I got to bail out of here, at least for a little while, because y'all are taking me down the wrong way. And so you're cool to say on all these spiritual things, God, you can do what you want, you can do what you want. But on this very real practical level, you're going the wrong direction because you're not in a community. You're not in a group of people who love you and care about you and are constantly bringing up the gospel in your face and saying the gospel means you can't do this. The gospel means you can't hold on to anger. The gospel means that you can't live like this. The gospel means that you 
like have to accept all that God has done for you in Christ. And you live in light of freedom and forgiveness and atonement and healing instead of in darkness by your own will, for your own glory, for whatever you want to do. It manifests itself in that way. In things that are morally neutral, yet wildly destructive. And it's easy to say, the Bible doesn't say a word about it. But you know the Holy Spirit is leading you in a different way than you are going. And so you consistently refuse the diagnosis. And there's a thousand of them. I just hit relationships because it's a big one for us. And the other one is not things you hold on to that are tangible. But it's holding on to wounds that need to be healed. And because they're so painful, you hide from them. There is like real pain and loneliness. There is real pain and anger. There is real destruction and bitterness. And it's real and it's heavy and you feel it and you see it. And you know it needs to be dealt with. You know it needs to be brought to light. You know it needs to be confessed. You know it needs to be brought out so that the gospel of grace can cover it. And you can move on. But because that's hard and because it could be embarrassing and because it could be just a little bit painful, you refuse the diagnosis and thereby you don't get the cure. You refuse the truth and you don't get the grace. And that sucks. 